Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Soccer Show and our latest foray into the listener questions mailbag. On today's show, we're discussing the players who can't defend, won't defend. We look at the lower league Cinderella story happening right now that isn't Wrexham. And we're looking at the best players who never made their respective national teams. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today, a man whose Richmond kickers are playing his very own DC United in but a few hours time uh, before we after we record... Taylor Rockwell, how are we going to handle these split loyalties? Are you going to sort of split in yourself fight club style and support one side for one half? Or oh, I'm definitely other? going to wear the uh, the half and half scarf that enrages everybody and then mm. cheer for them equally. I will not. I'm, I'm going for the Richmond kickers in this one. Got to go with the underdog, uh, even if maybe DC United also kind of an underdog simultaneously. It's a weird one. It's a weird one. Very nice, Taylor. I was observing CBS Morning Footy this morning uh, mm. as we record. Uh, we are recording on the day of the big Man City Arsenal game, the result of which we don't yet know. But it was quite amusing. They were um, on location in Manchester, Taylor, uh, in a museum, and they were just getting like randoms to come and give their opinion on the game. And it was all, because it's the middle of the day uh, in the UK, it was all holidaymakers. So everyone was ah. from like the Netherlands or from Germany or from different places. And several of them had half and half scarves on. Taylor, for the game. Man City, Arsenal, half and half scars. For this game. Ain't it fun? <laughs> uh, yeah, don't do that. It's a bad look. Uh, in the recent season of Ted Lasso, there's a character who does that. And it's amazing how they use that to tell you everything you need yes. to know about that character. It is outstanding work. Don't wear a half and half scarf. Indeed. Good writing there. Once again, from the Lasso guys and gals. Joining us, Taylor, a man who loves to see... An on-loan MLS player score four goals against Real Madrid. Joe Lowry! Wow. That was not something that was on my uh, Tuesday afternoon soccer bingo card yesterday. You know, mm. sort of monitoring the game on Twitter. Hadn't hadn't watched all of it yet. I've gone back and watched some of it now and see Tati scores. And it's like, oh, yeah, I kind of forgot he was on loan at, at Girona. I forgot that whole CFG shenanigan happened, moving him from NYCFC over to Spain. Yeah. And then he scores again. And it's like, oh, wow, this is this is big. And then he does it two more times. And Girona win 4-2 over Real Madrid and Tati has four goals, I think, which brings his tally up to like 11 or 12 on the season. So it hasn't been the most prolific year for him ever. But man, that's a game that he'll remember for a long, long time. Yeah. First player this century to score four goals against Real Madrid. NYCFC slash City Group counting those potential transfer (laughs) dollars as we speak, I imagine, Joseph. Uh, Rounding out our pack today, a man who put on an emotional tribute to Sterling Albion on our Patreon, Graham Ruthven. Um, The video you put on our Patreon, patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show, you're wearing sunglasses, but I think there were tears underneath, tears of joy. Is that (laughs) fair to say? 
<laughs> uh, there may have been may have been a tear at full time. I didn't actually film everything that happened at full time. I left off the bit where I took my shirt off and I wove it, where it, uh, waved it above my head you and dried you know, your eyes with it. Yep, yep. I dried my eyes with it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, maybe the tear. I left out the tears from that video. But yeah, it was it was an enjoyable and an emotional day. It was indeed. We are the champions. We are the Beatles. We are League One, says Graham Rutherford. Go check it out if you will. Actually, Graham, while we're on the subject, uh, we are doing listener questions. One came in from Nick Marroquin, who says, I've been looking to buy a Sterling Albion jersey after watching Graham's excellent Patreon vids. I editorialized. I added in the word excellent, but you're welcome. <laughs> oh, thank Graham. you, right. Uh, but they don't ship to the US and mm. Nick says he's an LA native. How can an American get their hands on Beano's jerseys, Graham? So first of all, it's amazing that so many on the TSS Plus Patreon page and in the Discord have been following along with Albion this season. That has been fairly surreal at times, and it's, it feels like there's some sort of uh, US-based Albion supporters group now, so the more fans we can get, the better. But to answer Nick's question, um, I spoke to the club this morning. So if Nick sends oh, me big a shot tweet, Graham, big shot Graham, oh, I am wow. at uh, Graham Rutherford on Twitter, or he sends me an email, Nick. So that's uh, Graham at Fancy Monster. That's a company email address, by the way, not a nickname that I've given myself. <laughs> uh, so if Nick gets in touch with me, uh, the club will uh, sort you out with some form of solution. Wow, uh, Graham, I have a question for you. Like with some of these clubs. Uh, being as big or as small as they may be, like Dumbarton, you had talked about how when they gave you when they gave you the vouchers that they basically ran out of the printed yeah. vouchers, so they had to handwrite them. Somebody like tagged Dumbarton and you a little bit of snitch tagging on Twitter there, <laughs> and and was like, "What? How can this happen?" Like I did wonder, are you going to get in trouble? Like is someone from the club going to find you? Like I am assuming there are not that many people there, so they could just like scream Graham Ruffin until you raise your hand, and then they come find you and berate you for outing them for having to use paper instead of. Uh, uh, digital so just generally i can imagine people at sterling albion the, the person who runs their their social media account this season is a little bit confused as to why there are so many tweets and likes <laughs> from various places in, in the united states that the pie tweets get a lot of likes and actually the guy who owns the pie company i can't remember if i mentioned this on the show he came and sought me out before kickoff of one of the matches to, to shake my hand and thank me for uh for the promotion yes so i think sterling albion are kind of aware of uh the, the support they're getting from the States. I'm not sure if Dumbarton really know why they're getting so much vitriol from certain <laughs> accounts. I imagine they're very confused about things right now. Pie Man wasn't just thanking you for the support. We actually divert your TSS salary directly to him. It's just quicker that way. He's also <laughs> thanking you for that as well. I like the uh, the idea, Taylor, of um, someone coming to find him from Sterling Albion. You know he's like vigilante-proof, Graham. He's got baseball bats. He's ready if someone's coming for him. I wouldn't worry about Graham in this this is This is the fantasy monster we're talking about here, right? This is not an easy guy <laughs> to take down. Eagle. Yeah. <laughs> Always prepared is Graham Rutherford. Is that Aston Villa's <laughs> slogan? I feel like it might be. Anyway, Boy Scouts. Uh, what, I was going to say, I think thing. that's just a Boy Scouts. <laughs> Boy Scouts. It, may, it may be indeed. Uh, point of notice, the Discord is wonderful. It's really buzzing at the moment. I got a lot of abuse for, on this podcast on Monday, I believe, pronouncing the name Texas Hoosier. Like H O S I E R. Taylor is laughing and nodding along right now. How do you actually say that word and what is that word? Hoosier? Hoosier. Yeah, this is also, I believe, from the recent season of Ted Lasso, where Roy Kent asks what a Hoosier is. That's right. And I'm not sure it's answered. I'm assuming it has something to do with the state of Indiana. Notice that I didn't say the great state of Indiana. I just 
correctly labeled it a state. I, I think that's what it is. Joe, any any thoughts on Hoosiers? Yeah, I mean, I know the pronunciation. I I know it's a th- I think it's like a thing for people of Indiana. Like, I guess you could call me an Arizonan. And maybe if you call someone from Indiana a Hoosier, but I, I genuinely do not know what it is. But I like, I like your pronunciation, Ryan. A native or inhabitant of Indiana. I don't know if that is an actual native of Indiana, like as in like the like the Pawnee tribe, for example. But that that's the uh, definition I get from dictionary.com. Okay. Well, thank you for the clarification. I'm sticking with the Hoosiers of Indiana. Thank you. Uh, that is what I shall go So fancy. We are taking your list of questions today. TotalSoccerShow.com slash questions if you would like to submit. Just like Kenneth Seiden has. Yeah. Hey, Kenneth. What players ask Kenneth, Kenneth, excuse me, that you guys label as don't defend players? Which ones are for lack of effort or intentional managerial instructions to not track back? And which ones just aren't very good at defending? Graham, this is an interesting question. When we think of the don't defend players, there's like a couple that come to my mind, and two mm. of them are arguably the best players of all time, Ronaldo and Messi. <laughs> is that fair to say? Certainly at this stage of their career, I think that is <laughs> fair to say. And th- this question would have been a lot easier to answer before FB Ref switched their data provider to Opta because they used to track pressures per 90 minutes and now they don't. And I would have used that. I would have used that, used that measurement for this answer. So I've created my own measure, which is what I'm calling Ronaldo Theorem. I think we can all agree that Cristiano Ronaldo, who's one of the players you referenced there, Ryan, is, is one of these, these, these players, these don't defend players because it was a big talking point. In the first half of the season, I have looked at his defensive numbers and then looked for players with similar numbers this season. So I'm using him as a bit of a yardstick. Um, so one suggestion, Callum Wilson. He didn't fail w- uh, fare well excuse me, in this regard, um, which I guess makes some sense given that his game is generally about finding space in the box. So I think that is probably managerial instruction in that regard. Uh, Aubameyang was also in there for his defensive numbers per 90 minutes. Interestingly, he was he was much higher in, in past seasons, so I went back to his Arsenal days. Um, so that kind of suggests that he's just kind of not able to do it anymore, obviously getting on a little bit. Another Newcastle player, Alanson Maximin, he was way down the list as well. He was even lower than Ronaldo in a, in a couple of columns. I'm not really sure what side I fall on there, whether he's just unable to do it, whether it's managerial instructions or un- unwilling to do it. Alvaro Morata was down there as well. Um, you'll notice that all of these players are, are kind of attacking-minded players where I, I find it much easier to measure them in that regard in terms of whether they're contributing anything on the defensive side of the ball. Uh, Karim, Karim Benzema, I'm not sure he offers much defensively yeah. at this stage of his career and his numbers kind of bear that out as well. So... Yeah, there, there are a number of suggestions there, but I, I do find it quite tricky to make that that um, differential between which players are unable to do it and which are kind of just adhering to a game plan. Yeah, I mean, Joe, that's surely the crux of this question is it's quite hard to tell who's not good at it and who's being told not to do it or who is a luxury player that is it's not on their agenda. Yeah, agree for the most part. I think it is. I think the luxury player category is a little bit easier to tell because... You know the name, you know what they can contribute when they have the ball or when their team is in possession, and you can understand that, you know, when you watch them, they're not going to be giving 110% defensively because, you know, they, they either just don't have to or because they're so good going the other way that it, it maybe doesn't even make sense. So the, the first three that came to mind for me about players who aren't really asked to defend, like, like 
you know, it is sort of a lack of effort, but it might be intentional or or not, like whatever. Messi, Neymar, and Mbappe are the first three. Like we talk about PSG and their poor roster construction. As fun as that could have been, and as fun as it has been at times, both you know for chaos reasons and also for entertainment reasons, those three really don't defend a lot, and it's left them compromised with the other seven outfield players. Messi, for club and country, is not super active. Neymar, mostly the same, and Mbappe, mostly the same. When we watch him with France, Mbappe often plays a little bit further to the left because you know there's another real number nine in that team and maybe even a number 10, so he's shaded more towards the left side. And defensively, France at the World Cup had him just hedge, right? You know, he, he would sort of track back, but he's not really in line with the other midfielders. He's maybe five or, or even ten yards ahead of them on the left side. So that when France win the ball back, they can just go vroom, vroom, you know, roadrunner style and Mbappe's on the other side of the field. There's a player who does that at club level who I don't think gets to do that at international level, which makes me think it is somewhat instruction-based from the manager. And that's Vinicius Jr. Now, we've talked about Real Madrid this season and they're so effective in transition. They're so ruthless in those moments, in part because Vinny Jr. gets like a five-yard head start on that left side. He does defend and, and does it more than any of that PSG crew. But he's another player that I think has some license to step forward a bit and not really worry too much about what's going on on his side. And then Benzema, Graham, you mentioned him, is another one. As far as players that that are just not good at defending, there's one that immediately came to mind for me, and we've talked about him on on listener questions episodes before we talked about him on week. Yep, Harry Maguire is absolutely the top tier. I think he is a very capable defender in a compact system. He's physical, he's aggressive, he's got good size, he's good in the air. But when he's isolated in space, and this is what we've talked about before, when he's isolated in space, he is vulnerable, or at least he can be vulnerable. So that was one. Trent Alexander-Arnold is another one that I think gets talked about a lot. I think there's some validity there. Really good in possession, really good on the ball, is a capable presser. But 1v1 maybe doesn't have the best defensive instincts. And then one MLS-related one that I thought of because I was racking my brain for some of these. No longer plays in MLS, but Taylor, you and I talked about this player a decent amount when he came to Toronto. Carlos Saucedo is coming from Liga Mekis, Mexican national team player, and was just absolutely wretched in MLS. Like, like, I, I, like so poor defensively, so disengaged, so lackadaisical with his movement. Now he's back in Liga Mekis with Juarez. But that was that was another one that sort of fit the wow, you're trying to defend and it is your job, but you're just not very good at it. Yeah. Taylor, any any more names to add to the list? Uh, any other players who want to accuse of a lack of effort as we sit in our mum's basements with yeah. our uh, microphones? <laughs> N- not really, because I, I honestly, I was a little bit confused by this question. So I'm glad that uh, Graham and Joe have gone first, because I, I, I don't feel like there are many players that come to mind for me that are like a lack of effort in their defensive acumen. I think for oftentimes it's they do other things so much better that they're not going to be asked to defend. I think where we talk about this a lot is with PSG and how they have numerous, uh, like a a fair number of those players in their starting 11. I think that becomes a problem. But somebody like Zlatan, I think if you have him tracking back to do like a lot of defensive work, I, I think it kind of nullifies the all the positives he does still bring to a team. And so in that way, like I don't think of anybody as being particularly lazy uh, because those players that do lack the effort or just aren't up to it. Aubameyang is a good example. Don't really play that much or don't really get that many opportunities. And it makes me think of like the, the, the question of like, who's the worst uh, defend like defender that's ever played in the Premier League. And the answer to that question is usually, I don't know, because he probably only played there one season for a relegation team and didn't play all that much. Like, I think a lot of players who don't put forth that effort, uh, Salcedo is a good example, aren't going to play that often. Whereas normally I think it's 
a player like Zlatan or Messi is just so good in so many other aspects of the pitch that they're not going to be asked to do something to kind of dilute those responsibilities. Yeah, yeah. I will and, say, and, I will say, just to add to that, I think a lot of what you said there is right, Taylor. I would maybe disagree slightly with the the lack of laziness. Like, oh, I, I don't know. I think you right. watch. I think you watch Zlatan. I think you watch Messi. Bye. It's like. Bye. Defensively, they are lazy, right? It's just a matter of whether you want to fight that battle with that personality and whether you think it's worth it to try to get them to buy in, to try to get them maybe dropping a little bit deeper, recognizing that there are trade-offs both with their happiness levels, which has a real impact on how energized and effective you know these players can be, and maybe even has a detrimental impact to your attack, right? Where if you ask Laton to be back deeper, and this is what you were getting to, like they're so good at getting forward that maybe you don't want them to drop back. But my counterpoint to that would be, you know, I think it's telling that none of us brought in a Manchester City player or a Bayern Munich player in this conversation. Like Erling Holland, Kevin De Bruyne, Thomas Muller, Lewandowski in the past. Like these are some of the best attackers yeah. that have ever touched a ball on planet Earth. And they do defend. So I think there is an element of laziness. It's just I, I do kind of side with the managers. I side with Carlo Ancelotti. Like is it really worth sometimes asking Kareem Benzema to, to track back or Vinicius Jr. to track back? Probably not. I think – like, so Zlatan is, is another good example where he goes to Barcelona under Pep and it does not work out. And I do think a lot of that is because Pep is asking him to do things that, that Zlatan doesn't want to do. And so he's going to throw a fit and talk about it publicly and be annoyed. In and the third person. Be of sold. Course. Of course, of course, you have to. Um, but even there, I, I think also, maybe this is splitting hairs. I just, I hesitate to say that's laziness versus it's just not a thing that they are interested in doing. And to me, that's a different thing. I think when you watch Messi stroll around the pitch, it used to annoy me. And then I think Barca fans pointed out, like, this is what he has kind of always done. He's he's never going to be that sprint back, hustling player to win a tackle. And you can judge him for that if you want to. But I think you're you're like if you do so you're sort of holding him to a standard that isn't what his coach is going to hold him to it's not what he has ever really been held to I think that makes sense I hope that makes sense to you all but I guess all I'm trying to say is that I think if you watch a player and you get frustrated by their lack of effort on the defensive side I see how that quickly becomes like oh man that guy's so lazy he won't do that work but at the same time I think to say somebody like Lionel Messi or Kylian Mbappe is lazy I, I wouldn't go that far with it either. I think it's much more so they're just not going to do that because the team has allowed them to not do that. And and to me, there there is a difference there that if you're built around Messi's going to float around and sort of do messy things and we're going to structure the entire team so that that is allowed. In some ways, I guess that's lazy, but in other ways, you're you're playing into your best player's strengths. And, and I can't really judge a player or a manager for doing that. Kenneth, thank you very much for that question. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about international players or players who've never played for an international team, but they should have. Back shortly. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Clee W. Clee Dubs has been in touch. Who are some of the best players of all time with no appearances for their international team? Some that come to mind are Mikel Arteta. And Alex Grimaldo, I'm assuming playing in a non-Spanish league, hurt their respective chances. I've got to say, uh, Taylor, I found this a really tricky question to find Mm. excellent candidates for. The the sort of names I thought of were names I thought didn't really play for their national teams. Like David Ginola, who was like a Premier League superstar back in the day, but transpires he did play for France a handful of times, basically. But he's someone, as an example, I thought would play consistently for France for a decade, but never did. Even someone like Chris Smalling, who here in Rome they think should be in the England team right now, uh, who had, I think he had 20, 20 or 30 this England appearances, thing. but yeah. has long since departed the setup. So that was about as close as I could come to getting a good, meaningful answer, Taylor. Yeah, I, I did enjoy, uh, I was, there's multiple Reddit posts about this topic, and almost all of them are flooded with like, Clarence Seedorf never played as much as he should for the ne- for the Netherlands, and then somebody points out like he played 90 times. And they're like, yeah, but he should have <laughs> played more. It's like, well, that's not what the question is. There are so many of those, well, he only played 15 times, and 15 is not zero. If we're looking at players who played zero, Arteta is the one that I think first comes to mind. And maybe some of that was that he was playing in England. I think a lot of it is that it was just an incredibly good Spain team, and he was in the wrong generation, that he's not going to supplant any of those players who who come through that Barcelona midfield, Xavi, Iniesta, and Busquets. So he's always going to be a deputy there. And then I think there's other players that were tried out or, or sort of fit in better to the, the various coaches' styles. So Arteta doesn't end up getting that call up. Uh, Almunia, I believe, never got a call up, and he was another one where there was speculation that he could end up playing for England because Spain just had a number of goalkeepers that were ahead of him, and he never got any looks. So you get those types of players where things are just too good at national team level, so good players don't end up getting looks. Uh, Steve Bruce was on my list, uh, the Manchester United defender and captain. Won plenty of silverware, but never played for England. Uh, I do not know why. uh, Yeah, especially because at that time, England were terrible. So between Italia 90 and Euro 96, right? And am I not right in saying that that was a real dip for England? They probably could have used a Premier League title winning captain in their team? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So Steve Bruce would be one. And then my final one I had was Paolo Di Canio. Gets one appearance for... Italy's B team, uh, but I don't think that counts. Um, And I think that there are varying reasons from maybe not being at the level that was required to play for Italy, but then also obviously having some uh, personality issues and conflicts, shall Uh we say. Uh, So, And I think just being a temperamental player maybe sometimes pulled his teams to win and other times pulled them into a loss. So I would guess that would be part of that reason, but he is a name that didn't make any appearances. Excellent. Some very good candidates there, Taylor. Uh, Graham, did you find any others? Yep, so the Canio was on my list. Steve Bruce was on my list. Um, in Scotland, Stefan Kloss was always mentioned yep. as, a, as a capless wonder. So he was the starting goalkeeper with Dortmund Joe, when you he just won say the yep. Champions League. He's on my list, Taylor. I had never heard of any of these players before <laughs> I did the prep for this. Like all the people except for Steve Bruce that you just mentioned and Mikel Arteta are, are out of my brain. And so I had two players on my list and Graham was just taking one of them. I just I Joe, couldn't get over like, yeah, of course. Yeah, him. Yeah, 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 yeah Stefan Kloss. I know him Joe, very, very well. 
Joe is about to give us his top five Stefan Claus Old Firm <laughs> Derby saves. Um, yeah, so he played with Dortmund when they won the Champions League in the 90s, and then he was Rangers number one for a long time when Rangers had a very good team. I know that's difficult to imagine now, but they had lots of money at that time. He was their number one goalkeeper. Um, Scotland didn't have go- great goalkeepers at this time, so it was always mentioned that maybe we could get Stefan Claus, kind of like the Stefan Fry argument with the USMNT. Lorenzo Amoruso was another player like that, uh, an Italian, as that name suggests. Uh, he played for Rangers as well. But the the standout candidate for me, above everyone else that has been mentioned so far, is uh, Gabby, who was Atletico Madrid captain when they won the title and they won Champions League finals and all that stuff and played over 300 games for Atletico Madrid over two spells over a number of years, never played for Spain. And it's kind of similar to Mikel Arteta where obviously it's not like Spain missed him. I mean, that Xavi guy was pretty decent around that time. But still, give give Gabby some love because he was uh, he was a great player for Atleti around that around that period. Very nice, uh, Joe. Was there one remaining name on your list? Did you say um, there was? And then yeah, yeah. I think we all know how that. Was. I had Gabby. I also had Stefan Close. Um, I, I I also I guess I'll say this. I also found this incredibly difficult. Like I yeah. was sort of tempted to go through and look at more current names who are really good players right now, but who haven't been capped. But even that was relatively fruitless. I think there are some good names, and I should have spent more time doing this, and I didn't. Jose I think there are probably Carlos some the good Gini. names on the <laughs> yeah right on the on the women's side that I didn't dive into. I was thinking with the U.S. women's national team of really good players that just never fully broke through. So I'd be curious to go back through and, and do this question on the women's side another time because I bet there would be some really good answers as programs around the world have developed. You know, Maybe there were some players that were ahead of the curve. Maybe there are some players now that are outside of of that field of vision. But yeah, this was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. It was indeed. There was one player who back in the day, uh, in the mid to late 90s, when Wimbledon I was very, reference. very, very Wimbledon young. Reference. Wimbledon um, reference. <laughs> it's coming. It's coming. Don't worry. Um, he was referred to as England's best uncapped player, the best player in England who didn't have a cap. His name was Robert Earl. Robbie Earl of NBC Sports, who got his cap eventually, but not for England, because he went to represent Jamaica at the 1998 World Cup. A very, very proud moment for Wimbledon fans. Robbie Earl played for Wimbledon, just to let you know. Actually, now think of it, I don't think Robbie Musto would have played for England either. So maybe we've got two uncapped England players on the NBC, three, NBC Sports decks. Rebecca Lowe doesn't have a cap either, by my knowledge. So three. <laughs> she should. Yeah, she should. Definitely. There, there is the interesting one of like which players never got a cap for the country of their birth, which is tricky because then you get things like Simone Porata was actually born in England but played for Italy. You get those sort of ones. Nevin Subotic eligible for the U.S. but doesn't end up playing for them. But I think that is a a different animal to this question, which is always interesting because there are a few and they're always kind of confusing. I still don't get yeah. the Steve Bruce one. <laughs> Do you know that a uh, Scottish player has actually won a, wor- a World Cup? So Rose Riley, who was one of the best women's players uh, in the 70s, there wasn't a Scot- Scotland national team at the time, went and played for Italy, won a World Cup for Italy. So she would fit into that category, Taylor. You saying Rose Riley reminds me of the 30 Rock bit about the rural juror. The rural juror. <laughs> Ro- Rose Riley and the rural juror. Yeah, it's, it becomes uh, kind of gibberish real fast. Graham, when you mentioned a Scottish player won the World Cup, I thought you were going to say Alexis McAllister, but I realise he is not actually (laughs) Scottish, right? He's Irish. I think his his, his parents are Irish or his grandparents are Irish or something like that. It's it's like there is a vague Celtic connection that he doesn't understand, but it's there, I think, on his father's side, yeah. 
Uh, it's definitely in his surname. We'll give him that much. Uh, Clay, thank you very much for that question. Carl Watson has been in touch. Are there differences to the struggles Thomas Tuchel had at Chelsea and those he is having at Bayern Munich? I suppose, Joe, the question here, how different are the challenges and the scenario at Bayern to the one he's faced at Chelsea? Similar levels of expectation, arguably. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I I think there are some similarities here and there are some differences as well. So I'll start with the differences first. It seemed to me, and we talked about this on the big thing way back, I think in September of last year, which I cannot believe that that was this season. Like that feels like so much longer ago. Maybe it was even August. It doesn't matter. But we talked at the time on that episode that it, it seems like a lot of Tuchel's problems at Chelsea off the field had to do with personality clashes, poor communication. You know, there was this idea that Todd Bowley and other higher ups at Chelsea were asking Tuchel to get more involved in player recruitment, which is something that he came out and, and just said, like he didn't really enjoy and was frustrated by. I would imagine, you know, seven, eight games into his tenure in Germany, now with Bayern Munich, that, that we're a little too early for some of that stuff to be popping up already. So I, I think that's a major difference, probably the major difference in context around the struggles, right? Not the stuff we see immediately play out on the field, but, you know, he's the guy that Bayern wanted. The, the reporting is that Bayern Munich wanted to get their hands on Tuchel and were essentially willing to cut ties with Nagelsmann because Tuchel said it now is the time. So I, I think he has more buy-in at Bayern right now, certainly than he had late in his tenure at Chelsea. So that's the major difference. There are some similarities as well, though. When you look at on-field struggles, we talked about how Bayern Munich are, are going to come in and be good. And they're not really going to have a ton of problems because they're still the best team in Germany. They're still in the Champions League. And that hasn't really been true. So at Chelsea... The problem for this team, one of the major problems was they weren't creating very many chances. It was a ton of the ball, but they hadn't been effective at actually leveraging that possession into any sort of dominance. They were 11th in the Premier League in expected goals per 90 when Tuchel was let go. 11th, which is a a disaster, right, for everybody involved. Now with Bayern Munich, you know, they have done some better at creating chances. Taylor, you talked about some good stuff they did on the weekend review earlier this week, but... I think back to that game against Man City in the first leg of the the Champions League quarterfinals. They didn't create much of anything in that game. You know, they were very clearly second best. They've had some strong performances. They've looked threatening at times, but never looked truly dominant, maybe outside of that first game against Dortmund, and part of that was Dortmund being Dortmund. So I think maybe this is going to take more time than I thought it was going to. It's pretty clear at this point that it's going to take more time than I thought it was going to. But the offensive side isn't all the way there, and there are some parallels, I guess, between Chelsea and Bayern in that regard. And then defensively, Chelsea were outside the top five based on expected goals allowed when Tuchel was was let go earlier this year. Now with Bayern, they've given up more than one expected goals in five of the six Bundesliga and Champions League games that Tuchel has coached. That's a really small sample size, and and to be honest, not one that we should read a ton into. Most of the real Tuchel judgment, in, in a fair way at least, should come next season when he's had a preseason, when he's had more time with this group. But I mean, the pressure is on, and there are some legitimate tactical and, and stylistic issues coming up with this team right now. Definitely. T- Taylor, we, we might define Chelsea as a bigger team than Bayern Munich. I don't know what by which metrics, but for Thomas Tuchel, arguably there's more pressure for him as a German who's managed a couple other teams in this league. It's got to, it's got to hit different to him than it does going uh, to Chelsea to manage. Yeah. I, I, I'd imagine there's more pressure on him now. Yeah, I, I would I would say there is, especially given how Byron's season has gone, the decision to sack Nagelsmann and bring him in, I think adds 
uh, external and internal pressure to what he's being asked to do. In that way, I think that is also a similarity that with Chelsea, I think you could say there's decision makers who are maybe overly involved, actively involved, uh, very publicly involved in bringing beers to celebrate wins and being in the locker room. And, and I think Bayern, every single time something goes wrong, we cut to Oliver Kahn and Hassan Salihamidzic looking very, very sad. Uh, so in that way, I do think there's a, a bit of crossover. Uh, I, I think, though, there's a pretty sizable difference when you look at the Chelsea team that Tuchel takes over. Uh, not even the one he initially takes over, but the one after Todd Bowley takes over Chelsea and how Tuchel had had to kind of be the public face of a club that had an owner that was being forced out by the British government. Uh, and and how well he manages that, then in comes this new ownership group who are who basically, I think, want him in some ways reading between the lines to sort of teach them how to do things and to take a more active role in recruitment and player signing so that they sort of are learning how to do things and how things work better. And that's where we get some of those, uh, like the uh, Todd Bowley's ideas about how to trade Lukaku and about playing a 4-4-3, uh, even though they will say that that never happened. Uh, so I think you have very active front offices in both cases. I think with Chelsea, it's more a front office that doesn't quite have a grasp on things. Whereas with Bayern, maybe they have too much of a grasp on things or, or think that they do. And and I think that's a good way of looking at but the situations for me is that like, I think there are lots of similarities, but then in those similarities, there are differences. So with Chelsea, there's a ridiculously bloated squad. Much has been made of it. You have too many players for too many positions, but here's a quote from sporting director Hassan Salihamidzic. Uh, we have eight world-class players for four positions when he's talking about the lack of goal scoring for Bayern Munich. So there's a similarity there. But at the same time, I think looking at this Bayern team, it's one that hasn't been significantly reinforced, or at least not to the quality that's expected. So Tuchel has talked about that. He talked about it this weekend, that basically you can just see the fatigue in this squad. You can see how many games they've played. I think he said it felt like it was their 70th game of the season based on some of the fatigue. I don't think you're really getting that issue with Chelsea. I don't think you're getting uh, the entire squad is just overly fatigued because there are so many players. So I think he's working with a, a smaller team. Both teams seem pretty disaffected, pretty unhappy by things. I think Bayern... It feels like the squad is sort of resigned to let's get through this season. Maybe we'll win the title, but it can't be billed as a, as a success. So in both situations, he is sort of trying to steer a ship that doesn't seem like it's going to be successful, doesn't seem like it's going to be particularly happy this year, uh, and is doing his best to kind of get them through. The reason I struggle so much to kind of draw a comparison between the two is because at Chelsea, Tuchel has two very clear phases of his his time in charge. And obviously at Bayern Munich, he's only just started his first phase. So I think at Chelsea, the the general issue, and both of you have kind of done a good job of outlining the specifics of this, but the general issue was that at Chelsea, Tuchel struggled to evolve the team that he initially built. So he had a lot of an instant success in strengthening Chelsea's defence and making them difficult to play through and then using the mobility of players like Havertz and Mason Mount and even Ryan's favourite, Timo Werner, to play in quick transition in attack. And that Chelsea team is the one that wins the Champions League just a few months after Tuchel is appointed. But then the focus was shifted to evolving from there to build a team that could win a Premier League title and, as Joe mentioned, turn control of the ball into creativity um, and pushing a little bit higher up the pitch, um, which you might need to do to win a Premier League title over 38 games. And he wasn't able to find the right midfield personnel and most notably the, the, the right number nine. So maybe there is so, uh, some overlap there. 
to what he's encountering at, at Bayern Munich. But at Bayern Munich, he hasn't been able to establish that first platform at all. So Bayern Munich have conceded 13 goals in his first seven games in charge. For context, it took Chelsea 19 matches to concede the same number after Tuchel's initial appointment. So there's no overlap at all between what he did at Chelsea initially and what he's been able to do at Bayern Munich. And, and obviously, this isn't Tuchel's team, and he's still getting to grips with what he actually has in, in the squad. Um, but that's the main difference when you compare his Chelsea team when they were good and this Bayern Munich team. I just don't know whether I can put that on his shoulders, given, as I say, it's not his team. And I think we'll learn a lot more about Thomas Tuchel after the summer when he has had more time to make his kind of impression on things. Yeah, if his- I have a question about that, right? because thinking about Bayern Munich and how disastrous it will be if they don't win the title this season... Let's say that happens, and I still don't think that's the most likely outcome, but let's say Dortmund beat them to the title, and they don't win the Cup, they don't win the Champions League, they don't win the Bundesliga. How are we going to react to that? How are we going to contextualize that? Is that going to be Thomas Tuchel's fault? Is it Julian no. Nagelsmann's fault? It, like, like, surely blame has to go somewhere, it's right? Where does it go? The board, for me. It's the decision makers who've assembled this squad, who hired uh, Julian Nagelsmann, and there was... Some debate about whether or not he was the right hire in the beginning. I think at boardroom level, they end up appointing him. And then it felt like they weren't willing to sort of give control of the club to this brash young player who doesn't have the the football playing background that maybe most of their managers tend to have. And so to me, it's them making a haphazard decision in the middle of the season, not really trusting the process or not trusting the process to play out and really sticking with it. So they're bringing in a manager at a critical point in the season and then expecting things to be different because we're Bayern. And to some extent, there's that arrogance there of, ah, we'll figure it out. We'll get through and we'll bring in a manager who we know is top tier and has been in the league before and it will all work out. I look at the, the, um, Mines game from the weekend, and, and I see a good example of this would be that they make adjustments with Bayern 1-0 up. Mines adjust the way they're applying pressure. I talked about it on the Monday show that when Bayern are building out, they're sending three and four players high. They're sitting on every Bayern player. Bayern continue to try to play out, and they don't do it particularly well. And then Mainz would sit off when Bayern did play through. But Tuchel, in watching him, Bayern kept giving the ball away when they tried to build out with that pressure high. And they would either hoof the ball long or they would get caught in possession and give the ball away or pass it out for a throw-in for Mainz. And Tuchel on the sideline is just gesturing, play faster, play faster, play faster. At the end of the game, that's what his post-match press conference is about. They all look really tired. They're not quite able to play at the speed we need to be able to play at. And I think that is a fair criticism. At the same time, it's revealing to me that he has taken over this club And his solution to a team adjusting their tactics is not to adjust his tactics and do things differently. It's, we'll just do it faster, and then we'll play out of it. And I think when you have more time, more ability to train and drill the players how you want them to play, you can play faster. Man City is a very good example of that. But when you don't have that, you have to sort of change things up. But Tuchel's system, I think, is so complicated at times and so mercurial in the shape that you're you're like already trying to teach the basic lesson to your players you can't then teach like the emergency plans to get out of that and so i think you're left with this sort of you have to go with plan a and just try to execute plan a faster and i think that's where you can see some of the limitations so again i'm putting that on the board because you're bringing in a coach mid-season like on the fly and expecting him to write the ship completely and i'm not sure that's realistic at least not in this season with this Bayern team Indeed. Uh, German teams renowned for not making changes mid-season and for staying the course and Bayern very much uh, eschewing that. Is that still the case? I feel like Bayern, I feel like Bundesliga clubs sack their managers 
as much, if not more often than Premier League clubs. I might be horrifically wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure last season, more than half of the clubs had sacked a manager at some point. Yeah, it's changing. I blame globalization. That's fair. That's yeah. fair. See Elon Musk's fault. Let's say that. Uh, <laughs> Carl Watson, thank you very much uh, for that question. Another Chelsea question here from John Johnson the fourth. Great handle. Will Enzo Fernandez actually be at Chelsea for the entirety of his 100-year contract, <laughs> says John. Obviously, a little bit of exaggeration there, but um, Enzo on uh, an eight-year contract, one of many players on multi-year contracts at Chelsea. Well, I suppose they all technically are on multi-year contracts. Long contracts, let's call it that, um, which Chelsea have done to uh, avoid FFP, financial fan play complications, to amortise the cost of those transfers. So Enzo Fernandez being the most expensive Premier League purchase still, which is kind of wild to think about. £107 million he cost. His contract goes over eight years, Graham. I found at least six other Chelsea players who have a contract which is six years or longer. Uh, Mudrix is eight and a half years. Cucciarellas is six years. Wesley Fofanas is seven years. Uh, we can talk about Fernandez, but the likelihood is if you've got that many players on these long contracts, they ain't going to see them out. That Cucurella six-year deal is uh, aging pretty poorly, yeah. uh, given his performances for Chelsea this season. Yeah, um, poor Enzo Fernandez. He's still going to be at Chelsea when Frank Lampard is back for his fifth spell as <laughs> as, as manager. Um, I kind of actually think Fernandez is one of the few Chelsea signings. So, who, who were the players that you mentioned there, Ryan? Mudrik, Fofana, and Cucurella. Yeah, I would say. Th- all three of those so far, and obviously there's still time for them to turn things around, but have not made the impression at Chelsea that Chelsea would have hoped. I actually think Fernandez is one of the few Chelsea signings who has come in and done okay. I mean, if we're using those three players as, as a measure, Fernandez is, is doing pretty well in that he's he's actually playing games in the first team, which is a, a low bar nonetheless, but... Um, I actually read a story, and and this was one of those Twitter things that bounced around and I could never find the actual source, but nonetheless, I read that Chelsea had triggered a year extension in Enzo Fernandez's contract. Um, What happened was one of their signings wasn't completely terrible, and they were like, quick, we've got to lock this guy down. There's only seven and a half years left on his contract, so now there's eight and a half years left in his contract. Apparently, they're looking at making that a nine-year contract, because of course... But yeah, I think Fernandez has actually done okay since he's come in. I think if it's Mauricio Pochettino that's the new Chelsea manager, that's potentially a good fit for him because he will play a system that is relatively similar to what he played in at Benfica, which is a, 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 a sort of a, a, a double pivot with a goal-scoring midfielder ahead of that double pivot. And, and I look at someone like Moussa Dembele, who was so important to Spurs under Pochettino because of his little short passes and his ability to to carry and win duels. And I think Fernandez has those things as well. It's the rest of the team that I'm kind of worried about. Um, so actually, Fernandez is one of the players that if you're building a Chelsea team from that huge squad that they've got at the moment, which obviously needs trimmed drastically this summer, Fernandez is one of the players that I would say you do build around him for the coming year. So maybe there is a good chance that he's still at Chelsea by the end of his uh, 100-year contract, as John says. <laughs> uh, yeah, to, to add to that, I, I, uh, I checked SportTrack, uh, which does contracts. If you want to believe the numbers, sometimes they're a little bit iffy. But Yeah, grain of salt, play, grain of salt. Yeah. Players with seven years or more remaining on their contract at Chelsea, Wesley Fofana, David Fofana, Benoit Badiashil, Malo Justo, Enzo Fernandez, uh, Mudrik, and Noni Maduake. Uh, and then you've got plenty of players on six years. So you've got a number of people who are going to be collecting wages for a good long while. 
I think my answer in brief is I think Chelsea hope that Enzo Fernandez is not there for the length of it because that's what the amortization is about. They want to then be able to sell him and report that as income uh, and not have to pay his £315,000 per week salary or whatever it is uh, for the length of that deal. But I think at the same time, uh, with that amount of money, we've seen it before, players just choose not to move on, uh, choose not to accept new deals because they're making that money. Why turn that down and go somewhere else where you're only going to get 100,000 pounds? So stick around and collect that check. I think Chelsea could find themselves in that position if some of these players don't start performing a little bit better. The other thing is, if that is the plan with Enzo Fernandez to basically flip him, mm-hmm. they bought him for way what, too 100, high. over a hundred million euros. Great, buy high, sell good high. Good luck, buddy. High, yeah. Buy high, sell high. That's it's how it works. But, but because you can report it over the like the full length of that deal, and then they're paying it in installments, it's basically really easy for them to report that. Even if they only sold him for seventy million, I think it's easier for them to report that as a profit because. If it's an eight-year deal, you can spread the transfer fee out over those eight years, add in his salary, and now it's a higher number, obviously. But if you then sell him five years on, you don't pay those remaining three, so you cut that salary out. Then you can report that income in as one transfer that balances your books pretty successfully. So, so I why think don't you pay the, the remaining three? Uh, you don't because, pay the remaining yes. three years of his contract. You exactly. still have to pay oh, the transfer fee. The remaining costs. three p- amortized payments because surely yeah, you're if, stuck if, paying if, that if, stuff. If they sell him tomorrow, they're paying for him for seven years. Correct. Yeah, no, that's, surely that's the Barca model of don't pay for the player. <laughs> <laughs> but, but isn't that more of a mitigation rather than a plan to if things go well, they sell him? If things go well, he's there for eight I, years I, and he's I think the, it the, be. the center of their team. <laughs> but if, if things go badly and they uh-huh. end up selling him for, you know, like 40 million or something which in the, the normal world would be a failure, they can still report that as a profit. Is that not sort of the, I like mean, the fallback? I, I think you are correct in your appraisal. My understanding is that this is the new ownership group thinking that they've got a ha- handle on things and assuming that all of these players will come good and we'll move them all on for lots of money. Uh, yes, Graham, that would be the obvious downside if that doesn't happen. And right now, some of these players don't seem like it's going to happen. Yeah, and, and apologies if this has already been said, but uh, just to reiterate if it has, and I missed it because my brain's been trying to cook up a Microsoft Excel spreadsheet here with all the amortization talk. Um, UEFA basically came out and said, yeah, no more big contracts, like no more long contracts as a, as a direct <laughs> result of clubs complaining about Chelsea. So the idea is, and what's been reported, and UEFA has even talked about this a bit, is that they're going to set a five-year limit on contracts uh, going forward. So this will start next year. I mean, all these all these things are already done, right? So Enzo Fernandez is still going to have his contract. But in terms of future deals, when a team agrees to a transfer with another team, which essentially is a fee that you pay them. So Chelsea paid Benfica a fee to have the right to then go and negotiate a new contract. So for Enzo Fernandez to break his contract with Benfica, then to agree to a new one with a new term at Chelsea. Now the idea is for future deals that they won't be able to amortize over like an 11,000 year period. Look, You'll look have at to do Chelsea it in, in five. changing the game. They should be so proud of themselves. <laughs> yes, the club that have gotten two different transfer embargoes <laughs> for, 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 for manipulation of the market yeah. well definitely played, should be proud of the way they manipulate well the market. They also <laughs> changed the loan rules as well. Yep. I think yep. they played a That's big correct. part in that. Uh, yeah. There you go. There you go. They, they are shaping the game as we speak. <laughs> Wonderful stuff from Chelsea there. Um, maybe just don't spend half a billion dollars on players with really long contracts is the moral here. But yeah, we shall see. I'm sure Enzo Fernandez is going to get his hey. captain leader legend banner yeah. at Stamford Bridge after his decade of service. When Enzo Fernandez is lifting that Premier League trophy in 2031, you're all going to look like fools. 
<laughs> Indeed, when Frank Lampard Junior Junior, the third Frank Lampard in the uh, in the lineage, is is now coach at this point. Wonderful stuff. Thank you very much, John Johnson, for that question. Let's take a quick break. More shortly. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with twenty four seven U.S. based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our listener questions. Ben Sundstrom has been in touch. Hi, Ben. There's a Cinderella story brewing in the lower leagues in England. No, not Wrexham. Stockport County just moved into promotion places in League Two. What's going on in Stockport and how are they out Wrexhaming Wrexham? Interesting, Graham. Stockport is in Manchester. little geography lesson for you there. Edgley Park is less than 10 miles from the Old Trafford and the Etihad. Uh, They are, as we record, fourth in League Two. So they're in the promotion places, as Ben says. Two games to go, as we record. So they're looking like playoff hopefuls unless things go terribly wrong. It's amazing, Graham, because they are promoted back into the Football League, back into League Two, this very season. So... Um, back-to-back promotions is what they're looking for here, Graham. Yeah, and the interesting thing about Stockport is on the Patreon uh, bonus show we did on Monday about Wrexham, I I said their story is so much more interesting because it's two film and TV stars doing it and nobody cares if it's a local businessman. Well, step forward, Mark Stott, the the, the very rich property developer who owns uh, Stockport County. We actually have an A-B test here of one club that's getting all the attention and another club that's getting barely any attention. Uh, Stockport County, while I'm sure they've not spent as much money as Wrexham have, they still have spent a bunch of money on new players like top scorer Kyle Wooten, who had offers from uh, higher divisions but decided to join Stockport after a chat with the owner where he was... uh, given the, 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 the inside information on the vision for the club, and I'm sure there wasn't just a blank check put in front of them, none of that at all. But yeah, they have a number of players that have been signed from uh, higher divisions, from League Two as well. Um, Kyle Wooten is their Paul Mullen of the tale. They've also done things like improve their stadium and their training ground, um, and it's all kind of quite Wrexham-y, just without a TV show attached. So not I, I think more of a fairy tale than Wrexham, but maybe not uh, a, a complete fairy tale either. Yeah, and, and to continue pulling the thread, I think part of what makes this story so special, and Graham, you're right, like the A-B test is is clearly pointing towards Wrexham getting more of the hype here and for a lot of understandable reasons. But what makes Stockport's rise so interesting is how rapidly they fell, right, in, the, in their heights before, which is, again, part of what makes Wrexham's story so interesting as well. So in 1998, Stockport was eighth in the championship. So they were, you know, one of the... 28-ish best teams in England. They'd won promotion back to League One as recently as 2008. But then before the beginning of the 2009-2010 season, they basically couldn't pay off some of their debts. So 
this sort of is a theme for Stockport. It had been a theme really up until Mark Stott took over the club in 2020. But they couldn't pay off debts and they had to be forced into administration, which is just like, you know, punishment for not being able to pay your debts, essentially. Uh, so they lost some of their key players. They lost their manager. And then they went on to lose 36 of 41 games that season in League One, which is absolutely brutal. Lost all but five games that season. Were relegated that year. Of course, they were relegated again the following season. And then they lost their football league status after 106 years. They then had five managers in the two and a half years after that point in 2013. They were down in the conference north, which, Ryan, you'd be better equipped to explain what that is than I am. But you get out of League Two, which is the bottom of the top four leagues. Then you head down, and maybe you head down even one more level after that. Where is conference north in this? Sixth tier, yeah. Sixth tier. So they're all the way down in the sixth tier as of 2013. Ownership issues basically had to pay to play in their own stadium after an owner sold the club to the supporters trust but didn't include the field. So they were basically having to pay like you would go pay to play on a Sunday league field with your Sunday league team. Uh, And so eventually it became very clear that the club didn't have any assets, first of all, and didn't really have any structure either. So eventually, after a, a couple of other directors coming in and groups of people leading the club, Mark Stott buys them in 2020 and wants to get them back up the pyramid, waves the debts, you know, takes care of all that stuff. And it seems like is a pretty well-liked figure by a lot of different fans because seemingly he's doing right by the club and they're having a bunch of success. So, Joe, you're saying Mark Stott doesn't have a gin brand. That is that is correct. That is actually he actually has like an aquatic gin brand. So Ryan Reynolds has the aviation gin. He's he's underwater is what it is. Yeah, so land and sea is covered. Land and sea is covered in the low leagues of soccer. If you want to get your gin, that's wonderful to hear, Uh, Joe. Thank you very much, Uh, Taylor. We're we're bearing the lead here that Wimbledon S Wimbledon beat Stockport one nil in January. Uh, One of the two wins we've had in twenty twenty three. Is that the second shoehorned in Wimbledon reference of the episode? Well done, Ryan Bailey. Well done, my friend. Uh, better, better work by you than by me because I researched this question for a good half an hour yesterday, felt very confident in my answer, and then read the question again and realized I had researched the wrong team because I am good at reading. Uh, I, think be- I think because they are playing Leighton Orient this weekend, uh, oh. I re- researched Leighton Orient. Who have a Top similar table, story? I'm yeah, gonna they throw, just got promoted. I'm yeah. going to throw them into this conversation as well as another potential Cinderella. It's troubling that there are two different clubs that have a very similar story because Stockport, uh, whatever, what, what Joe just said, running through everything, Leighton Orient, very similar in that they were. Uh, I think they'd been in the English Football League for like in the in the top four divisions for over 110 years. Uh, they have a new owner who <laughs> almost immediately gets charged uh, with fraud in Italy. Uh, he brings in an all Italian board who don't speak English. The club get relegated and relegated again. They're in the National League. Um, it is sold to Nigel Travis, who does have that Dunkin' Donuts money behind him. He was the chairman of uh, Dunkin' Brand at the time. <laughs> so uh, there is a little bit of Wrexham connection there. Um, and he has helped steer them back into League Two. They are presently top of the table and look very likely to be promoted, or I think they will be promoted to League One. So another tale of a club who, uh, in 2018, 2019, were in the National League and now look very likely to be in League One next season. The best thing about Leighton Orient is that they have this thing called the Third Dugout, right? And it's a hospitality area, and it is exactly what it sounds like. It's a dugout at the side of the pitch. It's at one of the corners, and you pay to sit there. And at half time, a Papa John's delivery driver drives into the stadium and delivers each of the people in the dug- in the hospitality dugout a pizza, uh, and then drives back out again. And wow. I want to do that at some point. Wow, uh, that's. 
amazing. More stadiums should have that, I believe. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, it, that rivals the uh, the, the St. Pauli sausage train. I'm not. I think I'd go sausage train over Pizza Hut, but uh, maybe or Papa John's or whatever it is. That might just be me. Also, to clarify, uh, Leighton <laughs> Orient ten points ahead, confirmed as the champions yeah. of League Two, so they will be in League One next season. So, the, yes. uh, a couple promotion campaigns in a row, not bad for them. So they they. Sorry, Ryan. There's there's a new channel in the Discord. It's TSS out of context. That is definitely going sausage in there. Uh, Taylor saying, I think I would take uh, the sausage train Saint over Paulie the delivery pizza. Train. There we go. Yeah, that's going in. You're getting in a whatever context. Style I would. I would yeah. take most things over Pizza Hut. Okay. Okay. Um, Late Orient. The thing I know about the most is they were owned by Barry Hearn, who is a famous boxing promoter. Um, oh and yeah. His son. What's his son's name? Eddie Hearn. Eddie Hearn. Eddie Hearn is also a boxing promoter now. So there's lots of very funny stories about uh, Barry Hearn when he was in charge later on. He sold it to the Italians who were dreadful with uh, and, and um, weren't very good with the club. But he'd have fans saying, come on, Barry, buy us a new player. And he'd turn around and go, you effing buy a new player. You get your money. <laughs> like he'd, he'd be like having back and forth with the, with the fans. I, very funny. I can't get over that uh, that owner. I forget. Uh, Francesco Br- Brighetti, I think it is. Uh, he was, there was a fan protest because he wasn't spending any money and was letting players leave. Uh, and rather than respond to that, he just got very mad and left and never went back yeah. and never spent any more money and then was faced with like a winding up order and had to pay a million pounds uh, over like my- multiple months. The Mike Ashley method. Yes, exactly. <laughs> just, I love the idea of you're, what you're fairly criticizing me for being inept. Well, I I'm won't out. hear of that. I am out of here. <laughs> Wonderful stuff. Thank you very much, Ben, for your question about Stockport, which turned into Lake Orient. Yeah, yeah, why not? Lots of fun stories in the lower leagues of English soccer. Is the TLDR there? Not all of them involve Hulu shows. One final question from Norm Scully here. Congratulations, says Norm. <laughs> In a recent terms and conditions you agreed to without reading, you consented to taking over the US Soccer Federation's sporting director role, and you must select one fictional character, one fictional character, that is, as the head of the USMNT. Who are you selecting, and why are they clearly the best choice? Now, Taylor, we clearly mm-hmm. have a new, a new US Soccer sporting director uh, in place, a very British British person leading US soccer for Britain yes. uh, at the moment. Yeah. Uh, so we're assuming you, Taylor, are taking this mm-hmm. job. You are appointing a coach. Who are you going to take from the world sure. of fiction? This feels like a leading question that wants me to say Ted Lasso. I'm not going to say Ted Lasso. Also, the name of the questioner itself makes me wonder if this is meant to be a Brooklyn Nine-Nine reference and if they mm, want oh. me to say Raymond Holt. But I will list. not say Raymond Holt. He's on my list. Because I think he would <laughs> he would be a very good manager up until something goes wrong, and then it would just be like, this is not my fault. You all are the ones who didn't execute properly. It's your fault that this happened. Uh, he, he can have a little bit of a diva meltdown on occasion. But I am sticking in the, uh, the policing world. I'm saying Cedric Daniels from The Wire, RIP to Lance Reddick, the actor. Nice. Um, I don't know if any of the three of you have actually watched The Wire, so that could uh, lead to some muted responses to this Jerry one. Jerry has. Uh, I don't believe Joe has. <laughs> and I don't That's think like Graham has. That's the safest has. bet of all no, time. It's, it's, a, it's a cultural blind spot for me. Graham! Oh, shame. I know, I know. Shame. Ryan, have you? I wasn't sure if you had either. Yes, I have. Okay. 
I'm, not, I'm still not sure I believe you. Fully. I have a pulse and eyes, Taylor. I've seen the boy. <laughs> Attaboy. Uh, Cedric Daniels, a natural leader who can handle running things from dank basements and dilapidated structures, so cramped conditions in Chicago won't be too big of an issue. Uh, he empowers his people, works to make them better, even if they suck. He still finds a way to utilize them. Uh, he knows right from wrong, but also knows there's a lot of gray in there, so you can be a little bit fluid in your approach when it comes to playing away in CONCACAF. Um, he abandons his initial philosophy of you cannot lose if you do not play and instead goes after what he wants. So he won't just throw in the towel and give up. He's going to fight for everything, but he'll also walk away as needed when things are obviously going wrong. Uh, but hopefully they will not. And hopefully he brings uh, some successful conclusions to the USMNT. Um, but a quote that drives this home you show loyalty, they learn loyalty. You show them it's about the work, it'll be about the work. You show them it's about some other kind of game, then that's the game they'll play. So he's going to teach the U.S. hard work. He's going to teach them discipline and uh, and how to get the best out of themselves, and they will end up winning the World Cup. Uh, thank you very much, Cedric Daniels, for winning the World Cup for the USMNT, my fictional character hire. Wonderful stuff. Did he invent Amsterdam as well in this series? That was Bunny Colvin. Oh, that okay. was Bunny Colvin, sadly. Okay. I was gonna, I, that my reference doesn't work there. Um, my my pick, Joe, is your fa- from your favorite TV show. It's what we do in the shadows. It's Colin Robinson. Nice for one reason, <laughs> one reason alone. All the best teams in world soccer, well, at least the two in Manchester, have a bald fraud in charge in charge of them, and this is a genuine bald fraud, Colin Robinson. He's going to drain the life out of the opponents, Joe. I think you should plant him in the opposing locker room, like as a welcoming force. Oh, you know, we're <laughs> France. We're so glad to have you here, Mbappe. It's a pleasure to meet you. Um, would you like to know about every single part of a car's engine in painstaking detail? <laughs> yes, you would. Yes, you would like to know that stuff. See, surely the best solution here is Jackie Detona as head coach, and then Colin Robinson as assistant to do the job that Joe has just. Oh, that is ideal. There. Yeah, that is an ideal. That's true. Combo. And he's got a uh, regularly human bartender, Jackie Detona. Has uh, he has volleyball experience as well? He knows the sport. He's exactly. a sports guy. Exactly. He's a sports guy. Oh, you're right. He's a sports guy. Darn it! I picked the wrong guy. <laughs> he knows. He knows to celebrate with one human alcohol beer as well. So I mean, <laughs> Jackie he's Daytona. Todd might be the man. He's Todd Bowley's man. He's Todd Bowley's man. That's what he is. Oh, he is. He is indeed. Todd Todd Bowley might actually hire Jackie Daytona. Like, I feel like there's like a 10% chance that he would hire the fictional character Jackie Daytona based off his amateur volleyball and bartending resume. Well, uh, and James Corden's recommendation. Of course. Oh, that too. That too. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. All right, Joe, who have you picked? All right, so I have, I have a couple of different nominees. I do want to start with Raymond Holt because I already said he was on my list. So uh, there's a couple of different ways this could go, but my general theory is he's an elite manager. Like uh, He would be a great locker room manager, gets that ragtag bunch together. Uh, he wouldn't take the job, which is the challenge, because he doesn't like sports. There's this quote mm-hmm. from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. My father never saw my potential in grade school. I wanted to spend all my free time drawing graphs and charts, but he insisted I play basketball, as if I care about slam dunking a three-pointer. So I don't know how we, <laughs> we convince him to take this job. My working, theory, my working theory is that if we can convince him that USMNT stands for United Symphony Mendelssohn National Team, instead, like get a classical composer in there, get a symphony in there. Like If we can get him through the door, I'm hoping that his managerial instincts will take over and he'll learn everything there is to learn about soccer in like an hour. So that was my first pick. My other pick, and I did go with a duo. I like our, our, our Daytona-Robinson combo. I've got Ben Wyatt and Chris Traeger as well. Chris mm. Traeger, easy for me to say. I think just a good management duo. Like Ben hits you in the head with bad news that you're not starting uh, Giorena, and then Chris makes you feel like a million bucks and we don't have a giant scandal. And so I think if we'd had those two at the World Cup, they make good cop, bad cop work, both very smart. Mm. Chris can also be the strength and conditioning coach for Giorena as well. 
So if it works for Andy in some small way, then I think it can work for Gio and maybe he'll be out there doing some sprints for real in World Cup training. Uh, I, I like this combo and I think they would do a good job. Joe, I think you've nailed it because Chris Traeger would absolutely start training with like, okay, guys, we're going to have a fun session today, really good time. We're going to build up the energy. We're going to have the best possible practice we can have. We're going to be the best team we can be. Ben, we're going to run 400 laps. Like it and would then do be the pieces. kind of balance. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, so, so John Collins, uh, who used to play for Scotland, he was Hibs manager for a period. And when he lost the dressing room almost from the moment he was appointed because the first thing he went in and did went into that club was said that, look how many push-ups I can do and we're going to have a push-up contest and he bet that he'd do more push-ups than the players. And he was right about that. And he lasted about four months in that job. So I feel like Chris Trago would do something similar. Chris Trago would be the one asking for the running. He does 10 miles before breakfast every day, doesn't he? Yeah, he's just the one who passes. He always passes off the bad news to Ben. So it would be like, <laughs> all right, we're doing the beep test today. That's Ben, ben after Chris has said, we're going to have a wonderful day and it's going to be all sunshine and rainbows. Okay. Joe, that is literally the greatest combo of managers you could have for the US 17. Graham, follow that. Ron Burgundy. Ah! He loves suits, so that instantly makes him respectable as a manager. That's how Roberto Martinez has got every single job that he's ever had. He dresses for the job he wants, not the job that he has. So if it works for Martinez, it can work for Ron Burgundy. He is a charismatic public speaker. Does it work for I can imagine having a jazz flute master as USMNT head coach would be helpful in some way. You could work that in with team talks or something yeah. like that. He knows how to fight a grizzly bear, which is sort of like talking to Walker Zimmerman. So Ron Burgundy, he's the man for the job, in my opinion. That's good. Uh, well, you could take them training and they could go jogging or jogging. It might be a soft J. He's not sure. He doesn't know how to say it. Uh, and you know they would, they definitely wouldn't have um, milk at half time. It wouldn't be a good choice. Exactly. Yeah, yeah bad choice there. <laughs> if, um, you know, sometimes the post-match interviews are behind a glass case of sorts of as emotion, well. Of yeah. Graham? Yeah, that would work. I like it. Very good. Very good indeed. Just don't have him reading teleprompters. <laughs> I, Joe, I was certain you were going to come up with an office one. I thought, I thought about maybe it. like Dwight, a Dwight Schrute, Michael, Michael Scott double team. Um, I mean, you can't tell me that US soccer couldn't use the Schrute Beat Family Farm for Camp Candy Cane. It's like the perfect location for that. That and the next sponsor as well. It's 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 not the uh, Continental Classico presented by Allstate, BioSteel, Volkswagen, etc. It's just Beats. <laughs> That's all it is. <laughs> Presented by Beats. Yeah. Presented by Beats. Get beats your by Beats. Shroot. Beats by Shroot. Beats by Shroot. Wonderful stuff. All right, Norm Scully, thank you for that question. By the way, um, the HBO show The Staircase with Colin Firth, based on a true story, um, Scully from Brooklyn Nine-Nine plays the next-door neighbor as like a lawyer, and it took me a while to recognize him, but it's brilliant when you do. Because <laughs> he's not stuff. eating wings and passing out. Yes, because he is playing a rather more serious person. It's quite, um, it's quite jarring, but a, a very good show as well. Uh, thank you very much, Norm, for that question. Thank you for everybody for submitting a question. Actually, one more here from Peppa Pig. Oh gosh, that's who should be the new head coach of the US. <laughs> These names are too good. Well, with with uh, little brother George, they could do a little. Just concert. as long as Daddy Pig's not there, oh, Daddy Pig is so incompetent. Goodness oh, me. man. <laughs> He's a Goodness fool. Me. Yeah, he's, he's the, he, he, Daddy Pig, and the mayor from Paw Patrol. Very incompetent figures in oh. children's um, cartoons. He's given a bad name to fatherly swines everywhere, like me. <laughs> Indeed. Why? Uh, why is he incompetent, Graham? I don't think I've, we've really gotten to the bottom oh. of why you think he's incompetent. Why do I think he's competent, yeah. incompetent, or why is he incompetent? Are two different <laughs> questions entirely. But why do I think he's incompetent? Because he never does anything right. Yeah. <laughs> in that in that show. Yeah, he's just too jolly 
Taylor. He's got he's all he's no that's, substance. See, that's what I think it is. I think he's just mm. too happy, and Graham is immediately uncomfortable with that. Whoever's right. editing, I desperately need them to cut Graham saying, "If only Daddy Pig's not there." I need that cut <laughs> and text it to me like yesterday. So many out of context TSS opportunities from this episode. We should probably wrap out by. I just wanted to say that Peppa Pig, if that is indeed your real identity, says, "Do you have any plans on making the podcast in video format? Uh, how do we know that your arms are really up in the air when you say they are? We're all putting our arms in the, up in the air right now, Peppa Pig. I can uh, tell you that much." Um, I don't know, Taylor, we could do, maybe on the Patreon, we could do some video content and show us, uh, show the folks at home, uh, our backdrops of pillow forts and bedrooms. (laughs) Does anyone want to see that? (laughs) I think people need to see Graham. I think we should, Joe's got an interesting position going on right now. I've never seen Joe's knee recording before. That's a new one. Uh, I, I think people need to see how Graham records. I think we just need to solo Graham cam. Okay. Mm, I'm not sure we need that. I mean, we already have our ASMR YouTube channel that we haven't told anyone about. <laughs> but besides that, I'm not sure anyone needs to see us. Wonderful stuff. Maybe we should take it. I'll, maybe I'll take Super a surreptitious screen grab at some point. Joe, Joe was, <laughs> as you say, Taylor. Joe was manspreading to a serious degree a moment ago with his knee up on the table. Still am. Um, Still am. Yeah. Yeah, it's quite visual for the listener. Thank you very much, listener. Thank you, Joe, indeed, for your manspreading and for all your contributions, sir. Right back at you, Ryan. <laughs> Taylor Rockwell, a pleasure as always conversing with you in this manner. We've got McGinn. Super John McGinn. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, my gosh. The chat, more content for the channel. Thank you very much, Taylor. And Graham, I suggest when you press stop on your record, go and get the wire, open up the box set, start oh, it, and then report back st- when you're done. I've got stuff to do, Ryan, this year. I mean, there's a lot to get through. <laughs> I'll do it one day. I promise. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you, listener, once again for joining us. We'll be back on the feed very shortly. But for now, bye. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.